Wait, are you waiting to be told to sit down? You may be seated. <laughs> I didn't know you were so authoritarian, John. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a, it's a delight to be uh, with you and... Um, it's a strange providence that brings us here, but um, it is a delight because we, we, we love uh, John and Linda very much, and they are, they are absolutely precious to us. And so I mentioned to John that we'd be in Phoenix, and he's like, hey, why don't you preach for us? And... I said, okay, and so, uh, and I forgot, John had sent me, I think you texted me and said, why don't you preach on the stated subject, and I said, okay, and then I completely forgot about it and offered him three or four other sermons that I would have been excited to preach on. But instead, John being the uh, autocrat and all, um, I'm going to preach on what he told me to preach on, which is why we don't baptize our babies. All right? So we're just going to ask for the Lord's help and, um, <laughs> and uh, seek the grace and charity for any Presbyterians that are among us. <laughs> Father, we thank you that you, through your Son, have taken the sting out of death. We thank you that, that the empty tomb still speaks. And so, Father, we pray that even now the resurrected, exalted Christ would be pleased to use the scepter of his word to build up his church today. We commit this time to you, and we pray that you would give us um, charitable hearts as we talk about something that we have disagreements with, with, with good brothers and sisters. And we pray, Father, that not only would you give us biblical conviction, but you would give us uh, charity and grace in our hearts towards others as well. We commit this time to you, pray that you'd be glorified in it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you are um, Reformed and you have the conviction of what we would call credo baptism, uh, believer's baptism, we baptize upon a profession of faith, you realize that there are a lot of people that don't think that a Baptist can be reformed because, so the argument goes, being reformed means holding to covenant theology. Covenant theology means by necessity holding to covenantal baptism, which means the baptism of your children. And so since Baptists do not covenantally baptize their babies, they clearly are not Reformed. 
And so what has happened is that oftentimes Baptists have not done themselves any favors um, or helped their own cause in the way that we've addressed this issue. Oftentimes, Baptists have argued against infant baptism simply by saying there's not one single example of a baptized baby in the New Testament and the paedo-baptist or our Presbyterian friend is completely unfazed, unmoved, concluding that Baptists are not only theologically naive but near-biblically illiterate. You ever see the movie A River Runs Through It? Have you seen that? It's a great movie, right? Tom Skerritt plays the Presbyterian father, sort of a stern guy, right? My favorite line in the whole movie, Robert Redford's narrating, and there's this scene that's unfolding. It's from the perspective of one of the sons, and he says, the Burns family run a general store in a one-store town and still managed to do it badly. They were Methodists, a denomination my father referred to as Baptists who could read. (laughs) It's funny. So when we come to the issue of claiming to be Reformed, um, and yet we refuse to baptize our babies, we actually have to have a a good defense. And from from a Presbyterian perspective, just to say well, uh, I don't find it in the New Testament, is not a good defense. Our defense actually has to take into account the way that they argue for infant baptism. Our, our defense can't simply be, I don't see it in the New Testament, because they have a, 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 they have a bigger argument, which is why Pastor John read Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is the favorite text of Presbyterians for why you baptize your babies. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the covenantal basis for baptizing children, infants of believers, and we're going to then look at the covenantal basis, notice covenantal basis, for refusing to baptize our babies. And so I apologize ahead of time, this will be like drinking out of a fire hose. You will be thoroughly immersed, pardon the pun, and um, not merely sprinkled. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I don't have time, uh, and, um, and, and maybe this is something that Pastor John's done in the past, I don't have time to, to set the broader framework for covenant theology, but basically covenant theology in its, in its classic form um, is built around three distinct covenants. Um, one would be the covenant of works, which was established with Adam in the garden in which Adam represents the entirety of the human race as their federal head. He falls. Adam's sin is imputed to those that Adam represents. Then you have the covenant of redemption, which is uh, a what we would call a pretemporal, that is, it's in eternity before time, uh, covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
in which the Father commissions the Son to come as the last Adam to come and represent His people in His doing, that is His perfect life of obedience, and His dying, that is His sacrifice for our sins. And then the Father grants to the Son a group of people that the Father has chosen to be um, a gift or a, um, well, gift to His Son. Then there's the covenant of grace. And it's the covenant of grace that really ends up being sort of the critical part of what we're going to talk about, right? So again, let me just, I, I got to do this quickly, but I'm going to try to do it as clearly as possible. So from, um, from the position of baptizing your, your infants, you have to understand that there is a perspective on what's called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is first and, and this is important language, is first given in Genesis 3.15 with the first gospel promise. So whereas in our confession, we look at what happens in Genesis 3.15, right, where God actually says that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? You'll bruise his heel, he will crush your head, we see that as the first gospel promise pointing us to the Messiah. And we would say that it is the gospel that's promised there. The, the other perspective would say, no, that is actually the establishment of the covenant of grace. And so the covenant of grace, and this is, this is the important part, the covenant of grace is one substance, right? One covenant that's differently administered through redemptive history, right? So the one covenant, i.e. the covenant of grace, is administered differently throughout redemptive history. So the substance of the covenant refers to the internal reality of the covenant. The administration of the covenant refers to the national or physical application of the covenant, all right? Good so far, right? Covenant of grace, one substance, and that substance of the covenant is internal. Then you have different administrations of that covenant, and the administrations of that covenant are external, physical, and national. So the external administration of the covenant rooted in Genesis 17... Who is to be circumcised in Genesis 17? Abraham and his offspring. All right? And so they would say, one substance, covenant of grace that you see in the Abrahamic covenant. And how is it administered? It is administered visibly or physically, right? And what is the external administration of the covenant of grace in Genesis 17? The answer is circumcision. Okay? What happened if you failed to be circumcised? Okay, by the way, that's, that's actually a play on words, isn't it? Okay? If you fail to be circumcised, you're cut off. Okay? It's not supposed to be funny, but I guess it is. Um, and so, in order to be a part of the covenant, you have to receive 
the sign of the covenant, which of course is circumcision. So who is circumcised in Genesis 17? Well, Abraham and Ishmael and all of his children, right? This is part of the covenant, but also all of his servants, which is kind of interesting, all right? So the internal administration of the covenant, of course, ends up being spiritual. That is, it's applied to the elect. It's, it's, um, it, it's uh, expressed by true faith, by true believers, all right? So you see what's happening, okay? So this is, if I had a, if I had a big whiteboard, I'd draw the picture for you. What the result is, is you have a, a big circle, which is the administration of that covenant, which is physical, national. It identified who got an inheritance in the land, who was actually a part of the physical seed of Abraham. Big circle administration. Smaller internal circle, covenant of grace that is operative in the hearts of true believers. All right. Now, what ends up happening is... From this perspective, and by the way, this is true under the Old Covenant, you have a mixture of believers and unbelievers under the covenant of grace. All right? And you see why, right? So you'll have Abraham, true believer. You have circumcised offspring of Abraham, some are, some aren't. All right? So, vitally important, you have a mixed covenant. All right? Now, the pedo-baptist justifies baptizing their children, or to be specific, the children of believers, because the covenant of grace includes both the physical offspring of believers. In other words, Pado-Baptists baptize their children because they see the new covenant as actually simply being um, a continuation of that covenant of grace. And if Abraham circumcised his children, then believers should baptize their children. Now, by the way, that means not only is the Abrahamic covenant or, widen that out, the old covenant a mixed covenant, but it also means, by definition, the new covenant is a mixed covenant. Okay? Are, we, are, we like, are you like, John, what, why did you bring this guy here to... Do this, right? Um, I'm a man under authority. I'm just doing what I've been told, all right? Now, oh boy, we don't have time to, to go into this, but let me just say that the idea of the covenant, by the way, the new covenant is the same as the Abrahamic covenant. It's all one covenant, right? One substance, okay? So, you have to understand that at the time of the Reformation, the uh, magisterial reformers all uh, continued the practice of infant baptism because they had a view of the church that was, in fact, a state church. 
So to be born, let's say you're born in, in some part of Sweden, you then are baptized as a Lutheran. You are baptized into the church by virtue of what? By virtue of the country that you're born in and the religion that they, right? We call that sacral religion. Not everybody at the Reformation believed that, but that's, that's another sermon um, to bore you on another occasion. <laughs> All right, so Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, but question 74 says, should infants also be baptized? The answer, yes. Infants, as well as adults, are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Now, let me just say, I think that children of believers should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as well, but it's not by administering the sign of the covenant to them and including them in the visible people of God, all right? Amen. Okay, amen, good, so you're with me, at least three of you. All right, Heidelberg Catechism. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism, all right? So that's, that's the argument, that's the argument. One covenant of grace differently administered physically to the children of those in the covenant. And then that gets brought over to the new covenant. Baptism simply replaces circumcision. And therefore, you have, again, a mixed covenant. Because unless, unless you're going to argue that you're saved by the administration of baptism which very, 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 very few Presbyterians would argue, okay? you have to acknowledge that there are, there are people that receive the sign of the covenant who are physically, visibly in the covenant, but are not among God's elect or true believers. All right? So, John Murray... One of my, most of my favorite theologians are dead Presbyterians, okay? And so I love my Presbyterian brothers. Who of us do not owe a debt of gratitude to people like R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson and others, right? And so my favorite 20th century Presbyterian theologian is John Murray. Murray in his book on Christian baptism just says it just bluntly. Baptism is the circumcision of of the New Testament, okay? Or Charles Hodge, who could fail to love the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge, and he says this, when a man becomes a Christian, his children are to be regarded as doing the same. So, we can see that the Pado-Baptist position requires, or I should say rests, strictly... On a, on a covenantal continuity between the old and the new. And this is, this is the way that I would put it. What they do is they completely 
flatline Old and New Covenants. Because to them, they're the same anyway. The only difference is the modes of administration. So you get this flat line. We, we actually would see more contour. We would see, we would see, let's say, a little more discontinuity. But this is the basis. And we can also see from the position it relies heavily on the Abrahamic covenant and the, and the institution of circumcision, which, by the way, is carried into the Mosaic Covenant. That's the sign of the covenant. So, within this, within this covenantal continuity, baptism replaces circumcision. And so, just as the children of Israelites were circumcised, or at least the boys, on the eighth day under the Old Covenant, so children of believers are baptized under the New Covenant. That's their argument. So, when you go... Well, I don't see one case of infant baptism in the New Testament. doesn't matter to them. Because they see it as a larger biblical theological structure that's held together by the continuity of the covenant. And so when you go, well, I don't see it in the New Testament, you know, by the way, it's, it's, that actually is not, I want to say that's not a good argument anyway. What do you do when somebody comes up and says, show me a verse in the Bible that, that, that uh, tells me to believe in the Trinity? Right? How, do we, how do we actually arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the answer is not, we have a proof text. The answer is, we take biblical data, bring it together, and then work out in a, in a theologically accurate way that's faithful to Scripture that we have one God who exists eternally, co-equally, in three persons. We, we read the first part of the Athanasian Creed. And if anything, Athanasius was absolutely redundant, right? I mean, by the time you're done, you're like, there's two more parts to this. I can't believe it. And um, a <laughs> little more economy of words would have been, you know. But, but again, we don't come to the Trinity just by going, oh, yeah, well, there's, there's a verse. There's a verse. We look at it in terms of the whole Bible. They're doing the same thing with their view of baptism. So what that means is that we have to actually engage their argument at their level, right? We have to, we have to defend our position and, and, and do it in a way where we're not establishing, in a sense, setting up a straw man, right? Because that, that, never, helps, that, that never helps anything. If you have a disagreement with a brother or a sister that's a doctrinal disagreement, setting up a straw man argument for their position never advances the discussion ever, okay? It just doesn't. And we don't like it when people do that to us, right? Oh, so you're a Calvinist. So what does that mean? You don't pray or evangelize. You're right. I never pray or share the gospel because I'm a Calvinist, right? No, that's a straw man. It's not, an, it's not a good argument. Why? Because they're not presenting my position in the way that I would hold it. Right? We have to give the same honor to those that covenantally baptize their babies. Okay? Now, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to say that we do that in a number of different ways. 
But I'm just going to give you, in a sense, one piece of the, of the argument pie. It's a, it's a big piece, all right? It's a big piece. But there's more to the argument. But I just want to just sort of whet your appetite. And I would say that, that the way that we defend why we don't baptize our babies is because we should understand the Abrahamic covenant in its dual nature. Okay? Now, by the way, Presbyterians do see an external and an internal part to the covenant. All right? So what I'm about to share with you is not something that they would go, oh, well, that's never, that could never be the case. What I'm going to share with you, though, is understanding the dual nature of the covenant in a way that actually leads me to believe that we shouldn't baptize our babies as opposed to that we should. So when you think of the Abrahamic covenant, there's going to be three, three parts to this covenant that's repeated over and over and over again. You can go back to Genesis 12. You can see Genesis 15, Genesis 17. You can see the, the, uh, the covenant reiterated with, uh, with Isaac and then later with Jacob. There are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant, all right? Seed, circumcision, and land, right? Those, those three big-ticket items constitute the essence of the Abrahamic covenant, all right? So, seed, circumcision, and land. So, what about the seed? So, you've got the seed promise, right? Now, that seed promise begins in Genesis 3.15. Seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the serpent, Right? But there's a sense in which that seed promise develops. So that by the, time it, by the time that promise is made to Abraham, Abraham is promised a son. Right? Abraham is promised seed, but the, put it this way, the initial fulfillment of the seed promise finds its fulfillment in Isaac. All right? By the way, no Isaac, no promise, right? I mean, that's, that's what makes Genesis 22 so, um, so dramatic and even traumatizing, is God's telling him to do in the seed who represents the very fulfillment of the promise that Abraham had waited 25 years for. By the way, just as a footnote, you know God has a flair for the dramatic, don't you? God, God makes this promise to Abraham when he's 75 years old. And of course, Abraham is absolutely convinced that because of his condition and because of Sarah's condition, God's got to do this thing some other way. And so Sarah says, hey, I got an idea. Let's help God out. We've got this seed promise, got this handmade Hagar, you know, pretty good looking Egyptian woman, Abraham. And Abraham's like, oh, well, I mean, if you insist, um, yeah. And of course, what ends up happening? It was an all around bad idea. <laughs> you get Ishmael. Ishmael is not the promised seed. 
Right? So, trying to help God out never works in our favor. Let me just say that, all right? So then, Genesis 17, and Abraham has a servant that he's adopted into his family, and he says, hey, what about him? And God says, no, from you, your own body, and from Sarah. Now, you have to understand, God drags this on for almost 25 years. You do realize that with every passing year, Abraham's kind of thinking... Uh, God better do something. All right? And then God brings about a miraculous birth. And it is that that is the promised seed, Isaac. But that seed is bigger than Isaac, right? Because it's not just you're going to be the father of a son, it's you're going to be a father of a multitude. And then it is through Isaac that you get the descendants of Jacob and you end up having the nation Israel. So the seed promise is fulfilled in Isaac, but it's also fulfilled in Jacob, his 12 sons, and the nation Israel. And so here's, here's, here's this amazing thing. God keeps his promise to Abraham and all of those offspring were circumcised which means that they were they inherited the promised land that had been guaranteed to Abraham and his descendants all right but you have to understand that does not exhaust the promise because God has already said in Genesis 22 that in your seed Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed Paul says, he doesn't say seed plural, he says seed singular, and the seed of Abraham is Christ. Okay? So when the book of Matthew opens up and you have, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, it is like, okay, you have to understand what, the, uh, what Matthew's doing is he's bringing together covenant promises, plural, into the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. Well, then Paul picks up on that and he argues something like this in Genesis chapter 3 or Galatians chapter 3. You didn't know Paul wrote Genesis, did you? <laughs> so Paul picks up the argument in Galatians 3 and he says this. If you have faith, the faith of Abraham, you're the seed of Abraham. Okay. If you are in union with the seed of Abraham, by the faith of Abraham, you are blessed with the blessing of Abraham, the believer. Okay? So... Who are the seed of Abraham? Well, Paul actually seems to think that if you're in union with the seed, you're now the seed of Abraham, right? By the way, this is not unknown to the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually prophesies a number of times, especially in Isaiah, that Messiah was going to have a spiritual seed, a nation born in a day. The barren woman's going to look around and say, where'd all these children come from? We need to now spread out the tent because the children of the barren woman who can't have children, right? It's a miracle. Right? And these are the children of Messiah, so Abraham is the father of those who have faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. 
That's the crux of Paul's argument in Romans 4 when he says, when was Abraham justified? Before he was circumcised or after? Before. What, what, what was Paul doing? Paul's simply pointing out that, that really what connects us to the covenant promises of God is, is not circumcision or physical descent, but faith. So, the Put it this way, the strict genealogical flatlined principle, I would say, is now abrogated under the new covenant. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So, seed, next circumcision. So, circumcision is administered to the physical seed of Abraham marking them out nationally, giving them the right to the land. And so circumcision is indeed the physical sign of the covenant. It would mark out those who belong physically and nationally to the descendants of Abraham. But even in the Old Testament, it did more than that. Circumcision, even in the Old Testament, was a picture of a believing heart. It was a picture of actually a heart that knew God and obeyed God. And so we don't have time to look at all these texts, but let me just read a couple of them to you quickly. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. And God says to the people, circumcise your heart. And stiffen not your neck. Right? By the way, the, the language is a little more vivid in the Hebrew text. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. This is not just simply the physical administration of the sign of the covenant. God's saying circumcision of the heart has to do with what's going on in here. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Circumcision of the heart was what was necessary in order to know God. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised yet uncircumcised. In other words, the physical sign is most definitely administered to the children of the flesh to mark out their national physical identity, which included inheritance in the land, and it was also a, a physical sign of a spiritual reality or that had spiritual significance, and yet it was that spiritual reality which was often lacking among the physical people of God. Okay. So let me say that again. So you've got, you've got this big circle, and how do you get in the big circle? Circumcision of the flesh. But the vast majority of people that were in the big circle didn't have a circumcised heart that knew God. So the spiritual sign of circumcision is not baptism, it's regeneration. And so, by the way, boy, you, you preach like this today, you get in trouble. Not here, of course. Paul says, 
Do you know who a true Jew is? This is Romans 2, 25 to 29. Who's a true Jew? A true Jew is not one who's circumcised in the flesh, but who is circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. Right? In other words, Paul, Paul's making the argument at the end of Romans chapter 2 that being a true Jew is a person that's actually been circumcised of the heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, not just a person that bears the mark physically in their body. You get over to uh, Philippians chapter 3, and Paul says, th this is an amazing text. He says, beware of the dogs. Right? From a Jewish perspective, who are the dogs? Gentiles, ha-goyim, right? Gentile dogs. In Philippians 3, who's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the false Jewish teachers. You see that reversal, by the way, right? right? So who are the true dogs? The true dogs are not Gentiles. The true dogs are those that actually twist the law into turning it into a means of salvation. Beware of the dogs. Then he says, beware of the New American Standard, very delicately says, False circumcision, or actually mutilation. Okay? I think ESV says false circumcision, if I'm not mistaken, which is reason number 713, why I prefer the New American Standard over the ESV. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, so Paul says, beware of the mutilation. Well, he actually takes the word circumcision and he makes a play on words. So sometimes false circumcision is used to translate it. Mutilation's a little better because what Paul's saying is, um, I'll, I'll make this as um, tactful as possible. Beware of the castration. Okay? Then he says this. We, speaking of himself, and the Philippian believers, we are the true circumcision who worship Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Okay? So for Paul, you had a false circumcision and a true circumcision. What was the true circumcision? Those who worship Christ. Those who worship Christ. So... Christ's spiritual seed have received the true circumcision of the heart through the Spirit. Therefore, circumcision is abrogated. It's canceled altogether in the new covenant. And here's the important part. Not because it's replaced by baptism. Okay. Oh, I wish we had... When, when am I done? Four. Okay, so all right, good. All right, thank you, brother. Thank you. Let me just say, let me just make one, one quick point. If, if, if baptism clearly replaced circumcision, the council at Jerusalem would have been a different argument and the letter to the Galatians would have been a different argument. Right? What was the problem at the Jerusalem council? 
certain teachers from, from Judea had gone up and they were saying, unless you keep the law of Moses and are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And I want to just say, if circumcision had been just simply replaced by baptism and everybody understood that, James would have said, that's absolute nonsense. You've been baptized. Baptism has replaced circumcision. Nonsense argument. It's not what he does. What about the book of Galatians? The book of Galatians, you've got the Judaizers. What are the Judaizers saying? You've got to be circumcised. In order to be a full-orbed son of Abraham, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the dietary laws, and you need to keep feast days, Sabbaths, etc., those Jewish identity markers. If, if baptism had replaced circumcision, the Apostle Paul would have had a much shorter book. That's just a footnote. So circumcision is canceled under the new covenant because first, what it foreshadowed has become reality, and second, it as a national identity marker is now irrelevant since the Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect. So circumcision under the new covenant is absolutely meaningless. It's what it stood for that is significant. So Paul says like crazy things like this. Circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Or Galatians chapter 6 Circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. What matters is the new creation. In other words, it was in the act of circumcision of, in a sense, symbolically cutting off the old. It was a picture of regeneration. Paul says that the physical part doesn't matter anymore. What matters is the reality of a new creation. So... Seed, dual nature. Circumcision, dual nature. Those who are in Christ, the seed of Abraham, become the children of Abraham, receive circumcision of the heart by the new birth. So the dual nature, physical, national, spiritual, and we could call Christological, right? What, we, what we're saying is that that dual nature, there's going to be a level of discontinuity. What continues from the old to the new is the spiritual and Christological. What does not continue is the national and physical. That's what we're saying. Now, land. No time for this. I know. It's like there's a dual nature to the land as well. There's physical. In other words, there, there were actually boundaries that God said he was going to give to Abraham, all right? Now, by the way, this has, what I'm about to say, has nothing to do, really, truly, with the war that's going on right now, all right? Okay? That, is a, that is a different subject. If you want to know what my personal opinion is, I'll tell you later. But let me just say that those promises made to Abraham, all right, 
are not, in a sense, at the heart of the conflict today. Okay? What is at heart is, does Israel have a right to defend itself? And the answer is yes. Uh, right? So there, there are other issues that we, we... So when we think of the land promises okay, made to Abraham's descendants... And Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. This is the way Paul puts it. Abraham is heir, Romans 4.13. Abraham is heir of the world. In other words, it is the new heavens and the new earth which is the ultimate fulfillment of the land promise. Now, again... I don't have time for this, but I like this part so much. So, you go, okay, well, like the land of Israel, like, like, what, like the size of Rhode Island or something, right? I mean, it's small. And then Abraham, did Abraham understand that that pointed to something bigger? The answer is yes. Read Romans chapter 11. Okay. He actually understood that that little postage stamp of real estate which how much did he own by the time he died? He owned, a, he owned a burial plot for Sarah. That's it. That's it. He actually understood that that little piece of land was pointing to something that, that was his eternal inheritance. Whose, it was a lasting city whose builder and maker is God. Okay? So, <laughs> man... We, we get hung up on this stuff. You go, well, then is God not keeping his promise? So where we live, we have the Gardnerville Fairgrounds. Okay? Gardnerville. You ever been to Gardnerville? <laughs> Fairgrounds. Dusty, dirty, smelly. Okay? Lots of horses around. They do the rodeo there and everything. So let's say I've got my grandson with me. And we, we're driving down south part of Gardnerville. And he sees, he sees them setting up the carnival stuff. Right? You know, carnivals in town. They're going to set something up at the Gardnerville fairgrounds. And he sees the merry-go-round. And he sees the Ferris wheel. And you can already smell rotten hot dogs and stale popcorn and everything, right? And so the, the air is just wafting with glory, right? And, um, and so Calvin says, Papa, oh, would you, would you take me to the carnival? And I say, yes. So the next day we drive by and he sees the lights and he sees, he sees people enjoying the Ferris wheel. Papa, are we going to get to go to the carnival? Yes. When? Be patient. Day after day. Papa, when are we going to go? Then one day I go and pick him up at his house. He said, today's the day, Calvin. Today's the day. We get in the car and we start driving. And as we drive, we drive right past the Gardnerville Fairgrounds. And he goes, Papa, hold on a second. That's what you promised me. Right there. And I say, be patient. And we keep driving, 
And the more we drive, the farther we get away from the smelly Gardnerville fairgrounds and the carnival. And by the time we get to Bishop, he's beside himself. I'm never going to get what was promised to me. We're hours away. We're 180 miles away now. And so then we keep driving. And, and the more we drive, the more disappointed he is. The more he's wondering what in the world happened to the promise. And then I pull in, and I'm going to tip you off. I pull into Anaheim. Okay? And I tell him, Calvin, close your eyes. He closes his eyes. Papa, I, I told you, I promised you, I'm going to keep my promise. Keep your eyes closed. And then we pull up right in front of Disneyland. And then I say, Calvin, open your eyes. And he opens his eyes, and there behold, in front of him is the magical kingdom. <laughs> Do you think? He's going to say to me, you promised Gardnerville Fairgrounds. <laughs> if, if God gives you more than what he promised, he's given you what he's promised. He's just supra-fulfilled it. All right? So, new heavens and new earth. Land has nothing to do with this sermon, but we'll press on. So one covenant of grace under different administrations, what that does, in my estimation, is it sees far too much continuity and then requires the physical national components of the Abrahamic covenant to be transferred over into the new covenant. All right, And so I want to just say that the one covenant, different administrations, in a sense, preserves the genealogical, right, the biological, the physical um, aspect. And what it does is by very definition, it means that the new covenant is a mixed covenant of believers and their sometimes believing and sometimes unbelieving seed. And by the way, who is the head of the covenant of grace? The answer is Jesus Christ. So you have a covenantal perspective in which you have unbelievers who are in the covenant of grace under the covenant headship of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, how do we actually say, I don't think the continuity holds, and so I don't think we give the covenant sign to our children. Well, I'm glad you asked. I want you to look at two texts with me. The first is John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So remember now what we're, what we're doing. So Pastor John read Genesis 17. Abraham and his seed get circumcised. The argument is that covenant principle, one substance, different administrations, gets carried over to the new covenant so that now it's believers and their seed that are at least the visible children of God. All right? You have variations as to the actual status of so-called covenant children. All right? You have different, different variations. Somebody 
like Dr. Joel Beakey, whom I love and, and have a ton of respect for, he will say very clearly, covenant children need to be evangelized and converted. Okay? You have others on the other end that would say, if they're baptized, you presume that they're recipients of grace. You presume that they're regenerated unless they prove otherwise. All right? So you've got need to be converted to presumptive grace to some who would say that covenant of administering baptism to our children is an objective covenant by which those children are Christians. Okay? All right. So you've got a spectrum. So not, we just put it this way, not all pedo-baptists believe exactly the same thing about the state of their children. But what they do believe is the genealogical principle transfers over. All right? Now, everybody knows John 1.12. We love it. We use it for evangelism. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, just back up to verse 11 for a second. He came to his own. Who's his own? The Jewish people. Came to his own. Those were who were of his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, which would be as many as Jew or Gentile. Right? I mean, you have to conclude that from 11 to 12. Okay? As many as received him, whether Jew or Gentile, to them he gave the right, he gave the privilege to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And notice this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, who actually becomes the children of God? Those who believe on His name. Who believes on His name? It's not those who have the right parents. It's not those that have the proper DNA. It's not those that got the sign of the covenant when they were an infant. Who, who are those who are born of the children of God? They're not born of the flesh. They're not born of blood. They're not born of the will of man. They're born of God. And so there is this. By the way, it is a powerful argument. Do you understand that with, the, with the, the full dawning of the gospel in Jesus Christ, there's something that is, that is being revealed that had been foretold by the prophets, and that is that this gospel is no longer a gospel that's restricted nationally, that's restricted physically. This is a gospel that is going out to the ends of the earth, and it no longer matters who your mama and your daddy are what matters is that you believe 
in the Son of God, whether Jew or Greek, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, the fact is, is that it is a wonderful free offer to all who will believe. Now, do our Presbyterian friends believe in the free offer of the gospel? And the answer is, of course they do. But what I'm saying is that a passage like this says the genealogical principle no longer carries weight. One more, because I don't even really know what time you get done, but, and, and John is so nice, he's got that like British politeness thing going. I could preach like three more hours, and he'd be like, you're fine, brother. <laughs> okay, Romans chapter 9. Now, this is, this is the coup de grace, okay? Romans chapter 9. So, Romans 9 through 11 is a unit, right? Okay. And, of course, <laughs> Romans 9 through 11, what's it going to deal with? It's going to deal with, well, what about my kinsmen according to the flesh? Does Paul love his kinsmen according to the flesh? Absolutely. Does he desire deeply their salvation? Is he grieved over their unbelief? Absolutely. 100%. And so, by the way, in the midst of all of this, do not forget Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Okay? So we're, we are not saying just Jewish people don't matter. Okay? That is not what we're saying. Salvation is from the Jews. Okay? John chapter 4. All right? Now, Paul's going to make an argument. We don't have time to trace the whole thing, but he says something that is absolutely crucial in Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 6. He gives the privileges of Israel in verses 3 to 5, and then he says, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Right? So why would he say that? Because it looks like, Paul, you've just given us eight chapters of how glorious the gospel is, right? How powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Israel's Messiah, crucified for our sins, raised up from the dead, absolutely glorious, given us the Spirit, looking forward to a new creation. This is the best news that's ever been pro uh, proclaimed. And so then... Most Jews haven't believed it. Creates, in a sense, two elephants in the room. One, in light of the glorious gospel of Romans 1 through 8, the first elephant in the room is Jewish unbelief. The second elephant in the room is an implication of the first, and that is... If most Jews haven't believed, what about God's faithfulness to his people? Okay, you, you see why that would be an issue, right? And so that's why Paul says it's not as though the word of God has failed. Okay? God's word has not failed. Yes, most Jewish people are in a state of unbelief. But it's not as though God's word has failed. Why? For... They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Paul, so just understand, first answer goes like this. Word of God has not failed. Why? Because you have an Israel, and not all of that Israel is Israel. Okay? 
Some of that Israel is Gentile. Some of it is just a remnant of believing Jewish people, right? So the true Israel of God is not, is not in a sense, co-equal to the Israel of God. You have an Israel of God, and not all of true Israel is of that Israel. All right? That's Paul's answer. And so, notice what he does. Nor, verse 7, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, verses 7 and 8 are a bombshell to the genealogical principle. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, okay, you've got children of flesh, but children of flesh is not the same as children of promise. And what he's going to do is he's going to prove it, first of all, by uh, Jacob and Esau. One act of conception. You you can't get genealogically closer than sharing the womb with a twin that's the product of one act of conception. Paul says, Jacob's in, Esau's out. What's his point? His point is going to be underscored a little bit later in chapter 9, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. Okay? In other words, it's God's sovereign election. It's God's sovereign choice. That's what, that's what makes the big difference. And so when Paul says, look, it's no longer the children of the flesh who are considered the children of God. Who is it? It's the elect of God. It's those that actually believe in the promise. They're the children of promise. They're the elect of God. They're the recipients of divine grace. And Paul's actually going to, at the end of chapter 9, into chapter 10, he's going to show how the Gentiles have always been included in that very picture. And in fact, he's going to take passages that have applied to the Jews in the past, and he's going to apply them to the Gentiles. You once were not a people, but now you're the people of God to the Jewish people. I've stood there with my hands extended to you all day long, and in your disobedience and rebellion, you've resisted me. But there is a people that actually I have chosen for myself that weren't even looking for me. By the way, that's most of us. Okay? We have a a lovely Jewish believer in our church, Gail. And she is just a... But I'll tell you what, she doesn't sit there and rest on her laurels for her Jewish blood. She rests wholly on Jesus, the Messiah, okay? And so you get to Romans 11, which we have no time for, but guess what? So God's always had a remnant. He's had a remnant. 
My, my opinion, John's may be different, but I think at the end of the age, we have every reason to be hopeful that God's going to save a multitude of Jewish people who will believe in Jesus as their Messiah. He's not going to save them because of their Jewish blood, but he will pour out his spirit in a way that a multitude will come to him. And so, so here's, here's the point of Romans 9, 6 to 8. Genealogical principle doesn't hold anymore. It's not the children of the flesh that are the children of the promise. If it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of promise anymore, then why continue the practice of administering the sign of the covenant to the children of the flesh? So let me just say, in closing, the new covenant is not a continuation or a renewal of the old covenant. Little, little uh, exegetical gem for you. New means new. <laughs> okay. You might want to write that down because some of you might forget. Okay. Is in the original language? Yes, we can say that. So in Greek, new it just means new. It means it means like new in a different, as a different kind. And but that's. That's the glory of it, because God's already said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers, which they broke. It's a new covenant. And that new covenant is absolutely glorious. I'm assuming we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate a new covenant. And it's a new covenant in which all those that are genuinely in the covenant know God from the least to the greatest and they have His Spirit and they have His law written on their hearts. It is not a, it is not a covenant that's just passed down because, because of procreation. It is a covenant that comes about because of new creation. And so, I met my wife... How's that for a transition? In 1986. And I thought, I need to evangelize that girl. So we're walking. I worked at a Chevron station, and we're walking across the, the lot. And I said, are you a Christian? And she said, of course I'm a Christian. I said, why are you a Christian? She said, well, my mother's a minister and my grandfather's a minister. But how in the Sam Hill does that make you a Christian? <laughs> Listen, you're not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. Okay. Young people, you need to understand that. You are not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. You could have your, your, your daddy be a preacher and your granddaddy be a preacher and your great-granddaddy be a preacher and it could go back all the way to John the Baptist. That does not make you a Christian. Okay? You become a Christian one way and one way only and that is by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I was baptized as a baby, okay? 
with, with all the kindness in my heart, let me just tell you, what was done to you was not baptism. Okay? You need to be baptized for the first time as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these dear, wonderful saints, and thank you, Lord, that they put up with a long sermon, and we pray now that as we come to the table that you would prepare our hearts to receive the very signs of the new and everlasting covenant in Jesus' blood. Amen.